Well, this has been a good service already, hasn't it? We are blessed. I, uh, I've been looking forward to preaching this message for at least, at least two weeks. Not that one. I, uh, I don't know, you know, how many of you have ever experienced uh, something that was completely different than what you thought? It's completely different than what you thought. I, uh, I would have to say that, you know, I'm living it. I, uh, I think back to the moment in time whenever I met Peggy. And I think back to the spark that she applied to my life that I never realized exactly what it was until about 26 years later. Uh, you know, I might joke about Peggy a lot, uh, you know, and y'all know she is a wonderful, wonderful person. She is always on the go. And yes, that's one of the things that I really loved about her whenever I met her. And it's one of the things that I really grew not to like about her after we got married. Because whenever I wanted to lounge around on the couch, she was moving and she was going and she was always trying to get me to move and to go. And I'm like, I'm trying to rest. I'm trying to, you know, that was one of those things. But that is that spark that even to this day that I would not be the same without it. Uh, you know, but not only that spark, but the spark that she has in loving God that I didn't truly see until after she had spent 15 or 16 years with me and she was still there. I was like, wow, it's got to be God's love that has held this together. So that's why I gave you this title to the message this morning that says 120 gallons of what? Now let's go in and let's think about what 120 gallons of what is. In, first, in, in John uh, you know, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be looking at. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture. Yes, this is the passage of Scripture where Jesus does His first miracle. This is the passage of Scripture where we have Jesus, His mother, and the disciples are at this wedding in Canaan. This is that passage of Scripture. But boy, is there a lot in this passage of Scripture that God has for us to see. Man, you know, we know and we can look, you know, the Gospel of John is written for a specific reason. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, John actually gives us the reason for him writing this gospel. So here it is. He says, these signs or miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. See, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word of God come alive, and Jesus is the one that turns and that creates all of these things. Uh, you know, when we look back at the beginning of John, and we look back at the beginning of the Scripture, and it says that all things were created through Him. So Jesus' first miracle shows His involvement in creation. Now we're going to get there in just a minute. So hold on. Chapter 2, 
we find that Jesus is here, his mother is here. Some of the other translations tells us that his brothers are there at this wedding. Now, I ask, why is Jesus and the disciples and even Mary at this wedding? Where's the connection? Were they invited to the wedding? Only three days before this time had Jesus chosen his disciples. Some scholars believe that this is three days from whenever Jesus was baptized. I have a tendency not to like that theological uh, you know, uh, you know, path. Because if we look at this and we look at the path of Jesus after his baptism... John tells us that he was sent. Some of the other gospels says that he was driven into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days. So you have that Jesus was baptized one day and then Jesus was sent into the wilderness for not 40 days. Was it 40 days? 40 days. I was right. For 40 days. So it can't be three days from his baptism. It can't be three days from the time that he chose his disciples. I have a tendency to believe that they were just simply telling us what day of the week this was. This is the third day of the week. So if it's the third day of the week, what day is this? Tuesday. Their weeks was, Saturday was their Sabbath. So it would have been Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So we have it Tuesday, but that's really no big deal. They just wanted us to know where, you know, what, where it came about. So what's the connection? Hmm. Let's go one chapter before this. And let's look at, chapter, at John chapter 1. And we will look at verses 45 through 51. Now this is just a little snippet of where Jesus uh, you know, chose disciples. In verse 45 it says, Philip went to look for Nathanael to tell him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know uh, about me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Let me stop there for just a little bit, for just a second, okay? Because there's something that's key for us here that we, that we need to grab a hold to. Okay, because in 48, it says, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Back in the ancient days, there was a specific place that people would go to to meditate on God's word. And it was underneath the fig tree. So Nathaniel was not necessarily underneath a physical fig tree, but Nathaniel was meditating on God's word And Jesus saw Nathanael meditating on God's Word. That is how Jesus could say that he is a genuine Israel. Genuine meaning that he studied the Scripture. And not only studied it, but he meditated 
on God's word. So Jesus sees Nathanael meditating underneath the fig tree. 50. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I had saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man and one who is, and not Anne, Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Let me help you out here. Nathaniel is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is known as one of the disciples. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, grew up where? In Canaan. So here's your connection. Now, it could also be the pure fact that weddings in this particular time was a community affair. In Nazareth, was only about three miles from Canaan. So it could be that Mary, Jesus' brothers, Jesus and the disciples were simply there because they were in the nearby community that the whole family was invited to come. But either way, we have a connection with Nathaniel, Bartholomew, being from the same city that the wedding is in. So is that interesting for you? Does that give you the 120 gallons of what? Okay, all right. Well, let's go on into John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we have it here. My translation that I have just simply says the next day. So whenever we look at this, the next day, I'm going to draw this connection for you. The next day is the very next day from, you know, from verses 50 and 51. You got it? 50 and 51. So what happens in 50 and 51? Jesus tells the disciples, if you think this is anything, just wait. He sets them up. He says, if you think it was good for me to be able to see Nathaniel as he was meditating on God's word, just hang on. Because you're going to see angels going from heaven to earth. You're going to see me as the stairway from earth to heaven. You're going to see mighty things. So it's the next day. You got it? Are you excited yet? Good, good, good. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festival, so Jesus' mother told him, there's no more wine, dear woman. That's not my problem. You hear Jesus, you kind of hear, dear woman, that's not my problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now I want to deviate here for just a second. Now I told some of our Wednesday night crowd this already, but this is for you, okay? Jesus uses the same terminology here in chapter 2. Whenever he says, my hour has not come, or my time has not come yet, that he uses in chapter 17, verse 1, where it says that my hour has come. Same time frame. We see the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we see the end of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 2, Jesus begins. He says, it's not time, my hour's not here yet. 
And in 17, he says, my hour has come for it to be here. Let me give you a little add on this because in the meantime, throughout this, Jesus talks about the two flocks and he says that the two flocks will become one flock. So Jesus is saying that Israel, the chosen people, and the Gentiles, the non-chosen people, will become together as one flock because of him. In chapter 17, we find, or in chapter 16, we find that Andrew, that some of the non, of the other flock, comes to Andrew and says, Hey, we want to meet with this Messiah that you've been talking about. So Jesus gets the understanding. That this second flock is now looking to him as their Messiah. So all things have been fulfilled. And now it is time for his father to be glorified. So you got your connection. So let's continue on. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, it was, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, Though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then everyone has had a lot to drink. He brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Canaan in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him after the wedding he went to Capernaum of a few days with his mother his brothers and his disciples so we got it you've got the wedding you've got the miracle you've got the water you've got the the stone jars what we have is something that we will find in almost Every miracle throughout the scripture. And we have a setting. We have the call. We have the dilemma. And we also have the resolution. So let's look at these. So the setting is Canaan and the wedding. But there's something else that we need to dig in to understand. Because the setting is more than just simply Canaan and the wedding. What do you think it means for this family by the wine running out? In history, in this particular time, this information coming to Jesus gives us this understanding that this family was about to face utter destruction. They have invited these people to their home for this celebration, but they are not able to provide for this community celebration. This family will be scarred for the rest of its lives. Whatever, whatever job, 
or whatever family heritage that this marriage had or this man had would have been destroyed. Let's look at it as if Jesus would have been here. Joseph. Let's go to Joseph. Joseph, whenever he uh, you know, married Mary in the celebration, if they would have ran out of wine or if they would have ran out of bread or any of the food, the grapes or anything like that, Joseph would have never made it as a carpenter. He would have been shunned by the community that they lived in because of this one event. Because Joseph had shown, or this wedding, the, you know, this family has shown that they were not able to fill the requirements that it is meant to for this family. So it's a big deal. What's your setting? Where are you in your life? Our setting, Rock Hill, South Carolina, could be a family situation. Could be the fact that you haven't spoke to your brother 10 years. Could be that you haven't spoke to your mother or your father. It's the setting, it's the thing, it's the place that we live in that kind of move and kind of orchestrates our reality. It moves and it orchestrates and it changes or it makes us kind of who we are. It's almost kind of like it's our culture that we live in. How many of us worry about our culture that we live in? How many of us try to change the culture that we live in? I know nobody's raising their hands and that's good. But I remember, I remember Tristan Avenue living there. I was there. Mom and dad lived it and moved there whenever I was, I think they said I was three years old. And that house was considered my home until I was 20 and moved off to go to college. I remember the first black person moving into the neighborhood. I remember the four sale signs coming up in the three or four houses right around where this gentleman and his wife and his family moved in. They were trying to change their culture that was moving in around them. What about this world that we live in today? Do we try to change it? We should. We shouldn't change it by moving. We should change it by giving them God. So we've got the setting. So each one of you have a setting. Within the setting, we see the call. Now the call, the call is sometimes it's something that, that we might get confused on. Because the call is not Mary coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, they're out of wine. You need to do something. How many times do we do that? Jesus, I'm out of wine. You got to do something. Jesus, there's this problem over here. You got to do something. Jesus, I'm hurting. You got to get me out of here. What's the call? The call is whenever Jesus looks at the servants and he says, hey, I want you to go get water. And I want you to fill these jars. <laughs> Do you have it yet? Do you have it? We have to be involved in what He has for us. Now let's take this and let's bring it back to its roots. Because of the setting, the world that we live in, we're lost. We're dying. We're on our way to hell. That's the setting. The call is that we must recognize who we are. We've got to recognize that we are lost. 
And whenever we're lost, and only whenever we realize that we're lost, can we then join in and answer the call and do what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus is giving us this in the very first miracle that He performs. He says, every one of you are lost. But me, I have the answer. And I need you to do something. I need you to participate in this. I need you to realize who you are. By accepting, by the servants, accepting Jesus' authority, they're saying that I recognize who I am, but more importantly, I recognize who you are. And I'm going to do who and what. I'm going to do what you require of me. I'm going to do what you ask of me. So we take a step back. And we look at the words where Jesus looks at Mary whenever she brings this to him. And he says, woman. Now we've all heard the messages where uh, you know, they've all explained that whenever Jesus used the term woman, that he was actually using an endearing word. It's not condescending. It's not cutting her down. He is saying that woman, it's a good thing. He used it whenever he was on the cross. He says, woman, this is your son. See, it's a good word, but yet it's really not that good for Jesus as her son to say that. But we have to understand that Jesus had to separate himself from his mother, from his earthly mother. Jesus, by saying this in the terms that he used here, he set up his authority. He said, if I do this, I'm going to do it on my own terms. It's not because you've asked me to do this. Jesus looks at us and he says, this prayer request that you just asked me of, I'm not doing it because you asked me. I'm doing it because I love you and I want to do it. It's his authority and it has to be underneath his authority. It's all done because he wanted it done. Jesus' authority. We have the obedience and we have the call. You know, we show by this answer that we understand who He is. But we also understand who we are. We understand that He has authority over all things. The understanding, the acceptance that we see and that we have of this. So here we go to the dilemma. And we look at the dilemma and the dilemma for us, it really kind of jumps out on the pages from us, you know, because the dilemma is, is that they're out of wine. That's pretty obviously, right? They're out of wine. But hopefully, as I explained it to you, it goes deeper than just simply being out of wine. Because this is going to have a really bad start because it's out of wine. Jesus's ministry has always been for the downtrodden. And the ones that are outcasts, the ones that are set there on the margins. But this miracle is to keep this family from getting there. He says if they run out of wine, they're going to be one of the ones that's on the margin. They're going to be ones that's going to be outcast. They're not going to be honored and they're not going to be respected in this community any longer. So I've got to do this and I set this up. For us, the dilemma is is that we're lost, and we're dying, and we're headed straight to hell. But can I give you another 
some good news here. Anytime that you see a dilemma, there's always a resolution. Anytime you see a dilemma, there's always a resolution. And who's the resolution? Jesus Christ. We find the resolution whenever it says, uh, whenever we find here that in verse 9 it says that the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine. The master of ceremonies has some significance here for us. I've always thought that the master of ceremonies was Mr. High Potentate, uh, you know, the most important person, uh, you know, within the community that had this special seat that was right there in front of everyone because he was the king or the ruler of this community. But that's not the marriage, the, the master of the ceremonies. The masters of the ceremonies would be what we would classify or consider today as the wedding planner. This would have been the person that set up all the food. This would have been the person that chose the wine, that chose the flower arrangement, that made sure that all the guests were taken care of. Now the significance with this is, is the fact that the master of ceremonies wouldn't be the one that was partaking of the wine that had just ran out but would have been the one that would have taken the first sip of the wine to make sure that it was good enough for the feast. And then they would have been busy going about making sure that everything else was taken care of. So it's not one of the drunkards that's sitting in the audience that's out there partaking of all of the wine and is sitting there and that's drunk, that they bring him the good wine and he says, oh, hey, this tastes really good because we know. Well, I don't know. Maybe you know, I might not know. But you can get to a point that what it tastes like, anything tastes really good for you. The drunker you get, it doesn't matter. That's why he said, that's why she said, most of the time you have the good wine at first and then you come out with the junk later on because everybody's drunk and their taste buds are destroyed. So they can't tell you if it's good wine or not. But they say, you brought out the best for last. Hmm. Can I tell you something about these jars? Good, because I am anyway. You notice that the translation on the jars tells us that they were stone jars. And they were there for the purification ceremonies. Purification ceremonies, I'm going to help you out. And I'm going to try not to be too, too long here. Because whenever we deal with the purification ceremonies, this is whenever they came into the festival, okay, or to the feast, uh, or to dinner, they would have to wash their hands symbolizing purification. But we also know through our studies, okay, that this water had to be fresh water. It had to be living water to be able to be in these jars, which meant that they had just went and they had just filled up these jars with the water and they had poured out the water that was in those jars, live water, living water, fresh water, to cleanse their hands. Now, the second thing is, is that they're stone jars because in clay jars in those days could actually you know, generate a fungus in the jars that could have contaminated the wine that Jesus just made. Jesus, whenever he purifies something or whenever he transforms something, it is holy through and through. So you get it? The vessel was holy because he did the miracle. Because he changed the water from wine. So we have 120 gallons of what? Have I answered it for you yet? 
I have, but I don't, I'm just going to check and make sure that you know what it is. It's 120 gallons of God's pure love. It's 120 gallons of God's transforming power. It's 120 gallons of God's pure mercy. It's 120 gallons of everything that God is. Uncorrupted holiness. That is the resolution for us. So what is our resolution? It's 120 gallons of pure holiness from God Almighty that His Son, Jesus Christ, provided for us on this very first miracle. He says, you're in trouble. You're in the midst of a dilemma. But I am the only one that can transform everything around you and make you holy and pure. So your setting, don't worry about it. God has 120 gallons that will purify it. Now, He might not move you from it, but He'll purify you in the midst of it. He might not take it from you, but He will purify it right here in your hands because it's Him. Oh, wow. This here goes back to that leper, you know, to the leopard, not, you know, the four-legged leopard that He said that I can change His spots. See, that's the power. I can do Whatever I want. The problem with it is, is that our imagination is hindered on what God can truly do. Jesus just took 120 gallons of living water, fresh water out of a stream, and turned it into wine. Changed every muscle within the water and made it wine. Sped up time and fermented that wine. Because He is God. Our imagination is hindered because of our past. Our imagination is hindered because we truly don't understand Jesus as the resolution. Because look through the scripture. Jesus didn't do things the old way. Jesus did things His way. So whenever God looks at us and God says that I will give you more than you can ever imagine. What do we do? We think back. To the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. And we said, can you do a little bit better than that? And he's like, I don't even want to do that. I want to do something brand new. Our imagination cannot be hindered by the past. It's got to look forward to the future. That wine in those, you know, (laughs) in those stone jars. That's us. That's each and every one of us. And he wants to transform us. Into something that is pure and holy. Something that is different than you could even imagine. Whenever I get, whenever we get frustrated and we have that road rage. Whenever we lay in bed and we're like, I, I, I don't even want to get up today. I'm depressed. He says, I can take that away from you. He says, the pain that you feel in your back. Or that you feel in your knee or that you feel in your arm or your shoulder or your head or, or whatever. He says, I can take that away from you. The desires that we have for the things in this world. He says, I can take that away from you. He says, I can do it because I'm God. Because I'm all powerful. Because I'm pure and holy. 
But we have to do something. We have to go get the water. We have to listen to Him. We have to obey Him. We have to understand who He is, and we have to understand His authority. But you know what? There is a physical part that we must take part of for the spiritual work to happen. We have to physically, physically turn over everything in our lives. We have to physically allow Him to be God. Because we can. We can recognize our setting. And we can understand that there's a dilemma. And we can even understand that Jesus Christ is the resolution. But if we don't answer the call, and if we do not do something, then all of the rest is nothing. Absolutely, positively nothing. Yes, you can come to church, understand the setting, understand the dilemma, know the resolution, and sit here lost. We all have that choice. But the great thing about it is, it's 120 gallons of pure love, pure love, that regardless of where we are, he says, I can still transform you. I want to transform you. There's absolutely nothing keeping that from happening except for us. This morning as Robbie comes, I don't know all of your settings. I don't know what dilemma you're facing, but I know the resolution. And I know that you have to answer the call, that there's something that you have to do to receive the resolution, to receive the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Let's stand this morning. I want to give you the opportunity to come to the altar this morning. Whatever it is, wherever it is, He is giving you the option this morning. He says, here's the dilemma. I'm the resolution. Will you do what I'm calling you to do? Every head bowed and every eye closed. The altar is open. We're not going to take long because this morning's message was right there to the point. The call is for everybody. But we must make the move. We've got to begin to get the water. There is something that He wants us to do. There is something that God wants you to do in a ministry in his life and he is trying to prepare you this morning. He says for you to be able to do that, you need to answer this call. You need to step out and do something.
you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior! Isn't He one? Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. Bow down before him, for he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah, oh, what a Savior. Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. 
tell the world of the treasures you found. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for the message that you have given to us. You know, God, as the word spoke to my heart, God, I pray that they would speak and they have spoken to the hearts of the ones that are here. God, we thank you for being with us in this service. And God, I pray that each heart, dear Lord, is where it needs to be this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.